Hi guys, welcome back to this week's episode of Millennial Mirrors, a discussion on millennial life in the Middle East. So this episode is another topic that you guys chose about brain drain. So basically the concept of talented people or people with potential who end up leaving the countries that they're in to go live somewhere else where they feel they're going to get more opportunities or live a better life. My guest this week is Khaled Bahrami who is uh, basically someone who's actually done research on this specific topic uh, for Kuwait and also the rest of the GCC. So I thought he would be a good guy to bring on. And uh, yeah, listen in. It's quite an interesting conversation. And I get a little heated. Don't mind me. This episode is sponsored by Carriage, a great app for ordering what you need in a super convenient way. With no minimum orders, you could literally just order a cup of coffee. Hey Khalid, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Shada, for having me. So, can you just give us a little introduction about yourself? All right. Um, my name is Khalid Bahrami, and I'm from Kuwait. I live and work there, and I come from a really diverse background. I've lived outside Kuwait my whole life up until 2007. Uh, that's when I moved back for university. Okay. And then I worked there for a little while, moved away from my master's, and I've been back ever since. Uh, professionally, I'm a consultant, and I come from a professional background in education, retail, and just I have a creative background, and there's just been a lot of dabbling and exploration. <laughs> okay. So, Well, it always makes for an interesting conversation, but I guess we're here to talk about brain drain. Uh, why did I bring you on to talk about brain drain? Can you just let people know? Sure. Um, we, have a, we have a good friend in common who, over the course of, basically, uh, over the course of my work in Kuwait as a consultant, we... Uh, my colleague Jared and I put out a report on like, studying the the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Kuwait, mm-hmm. and one of our one of our good friends, actually, and our friend in common, um, from what I know, is she put she put us in touch, saying yeah. that I'm opinionated and have <laughs> all sorts of things that I can contribute towards brain drain. So that's what I. Know. So you've kind of like studied studied it a bit, and you've kind of looked into it, so you kind of have a bit of understanding about what brain drain is and stuff like that. So I guess. Let's start with what the definition. So for people who don't know what brain drain is, can you kind of like explain it to them? Sure. Um, in a nutshell, brain drain is a is the departure of a group of people who are trained, qualified, educated from one country to another. And okay. conversely, brain gain is the benefits that a receiving country receives from those people immigrating to that, to that country. So it's basically people who are educated, who have potential being like, nope, I don't want to be here anymore, and ghosting and leaving to another country. Exactly. Okay, and I guess, what are the type of people who tend to leave and move to another country? What is kind of, is there kind of, are there unifying, I guess, traits to those people? Yes. Um, the, the most common, you know, factor for people who move away is seeking a better quality of life. So mm-hmm. be it financial, professional, personal, so... Looking specifically within the context of the GCC and Kuwait, uh, you know, obviously I'll uh, I'll branch out beyond Kuwait, even though the conversation could be Kuwait centric in many ways. But okay, um, specifically looking at Kuwait and you know, like our work with the entrepreneur community, um, a lot of people would the Kuwaiti market is very it's it's small, but it's there's a lot of money to be made, there's a lot of opportunity there. Mm-hmm. But people who have aspirations to grow beyond the Kuwaiti market and to tap into you know markets beyond that. They find better opportunities specifically in within the GCC in Dubai. Mm. And, you know, for example, something as simple as regulation, ease of doing business, just easier, like the little things that make life possible are just easier in places like Dubai and elsewhere than they are in Kuwait. Okay. 
And what about people who leave the GCC in general? Why do they like? Is it the same reasons? More of the same. Yeah, more of the same. So just better quality of life, greater opportunity, and I'm happy to get into more of that. So what do you mean by quality of life, I guess? Can we, because I mean, a lot of people, um, and I got this when I decided to, for example, move from Kuwait to uh, Dubai. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were like, you're not going to find a better quality of life than you have right now. You Mm kind of have everything handed to you on a silver platter. Why are you moving so can we kind of, I guess, explain a bit what you mean by quality of life? Well, looking, you know, specifically like, again, back to the, like, sp- like focusing on the issue of the entrepreneurs in Kuwait, the ones who would move away mm-hmm. to a place like Dubai, they would say that even though Kuwait, you know, affords them a lot of subsidies and, you know, things are really cheap there and just who you know can get you, can get you places. The ultimate issue is when you work within a country where, you know, for example, things like e-government mm-hmm. and regulations and these things matter to you all right and bless kuwait but you know there's a lot there's a lot that they uh, that they do that's still very behind and just those daily frustrations right you keep uh, you keep running up against them and then there's nowhere to go from there so just the trade-off of you know giving us some of that comfort for more competition and everything is worth it in the end just because things for example could be easier when you move abroad and what about outside of business and entrepreneurship mm-hmm. I mean, personally, you know, I have a lot of friends who, you know, for their own personal reasons, they would, you know, they would move outside Kuwait and again, the GCC, because I, uh, I have friends obviously beyond that. And a lot of the restrictions are, cult- are cultural, the, mm-hmm. the sense of obligation within family, the need to perform to a certain, you know, to conform to a certain image. Mm-hmm. So people who sort of want to grow and exist beyond that, they find that too, opp- too oppressive and too binding. So those are reasons that push them out. And I guess where... Outside of moving from two different places in the GCC, where do a lot of people move to if you go outside of, I guess, the Middle East? Outside of the Middle East? Um, people that we know, um, and my own friends specifically from, you know, Gulf Nationals and such, they usually go to the U.S. and the United Kingdom just for, you know, because of the historical ties there and people who usually go there. So that's those are places where they can still have the connectivity and sort of the, you know, that legacy connection, mm-hmm. if you will but it's still far enough for them to maintain and get that independence that they so desire. All right. And I guess what was the goal of the report that you put together? Well, the, uh, the report that we put out was uh, we put it out in July 2017. And mm-hmm. the goal of it was just it was an examination of the business environment in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were looking at sort of multiple factors like access to capital and access to market and just sort of some components in, uh, in, the, in the context of an academic framework that we mapped to Kuwait. And we talked to 50 people, entrepreneurs, government, people in the private sector, the public sector, and so on and so forth, just to sort of gain a holistic image, if I can use some consultant jargon yeah. for you. But, um, and just a lot of the things that it revealed were, you know, strengths and deficiencies in the system, just in an, in an attempt to shine some light on it and to, to call a spade a spade. Because in so many ways, so many people here are not, are quite averse to criticism. And they just sort of want, they just want to say that everything is hunky-dory and we're making great efforts to make everything so wonderful. Mm. But at the same time, the only way that you can really initiate any form of progress is to call a deficiency out so that you recognize it and from there you can work on it so how was your report received i guess honestly controversially okay tell me more (laughs) yeah um it was we put it uh, when we put it out there it's um obviously we we used a lot of direct quotes from the people that we interviewed completely Mm -hmm. anonymized and not attributable to them 
but you know, like they would just use some very strong language and very critical words, angled towards government initiatives, government bodies, and you know, just sort of, and would bring up these issues that a lot of people didn't really want to hear. Just uh, when there's an image being put out that everything is so wonderful, nobody really wants to hear that it's really not as great as it seems. And that's what we, that's the kind of stuff that we put out. And do you think that's Kuwait specific, or do you think that's regional? I think it's regional as well because um, we we recently we recently did um, like my company we did a project in Qatar, mm-hmm. and um, you know once again there were there was there was quite a large population of people there who were who would point out a lot of the strengths you know that you know some of the initiatives that Qatar is doing and a lot of the energy and effort that's being put into it, but at the same time when you would bring out some of the more critical things and you know point out some of the failures in you know, the system, some people will get very sensitive about it or just brush it away or make it seem like less than it was because they just don't want to hear it. So have any changes been made since your 2017 report? Has anyone taken any action on it? Unfortunately, no. Okay. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, bo- uh, the body, that, the entity that we commissioned the report for, it is publicly available, so anyone can see it. But the entity that we commissioned the report for just shelved it and their mentality you know, about it was, oh, but we did help the ecosystem in Kuwait because we put out a report for them. And even though the report outlines areas of opportunity and things for them to work on, for them just the act of commissioning a report was work good enough and that's, that was good enough for them. So how did you feel about that? It's demoralizing. I mean, like when you, you work so hard on, uh, on something and you are doing it just truly for the betterment of the environment around you and just, you know, for your, for your country and for the people who are working in there, just to sort of see the, the powers that be, if you will, yeah. just put it away like that. It just makes you think, what more can I do to make this change happen? So what were you hoping to happen, I guess? I mean, you know, just for more people essentially to pick it up and not maybe not necessarily the report, but just to sort of to create a deeper dialogue and just have more action being taken and you called out X factor. Okay, here's a deficiency. What can we do to work on that, mm. for example? But, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, a lot of those things just didn't happen. So so are you thinking of leaving Kuwait now? <laughs> Oof, you know, the number of times that I thought about, you know, just up and leaving. And um, when, I, when I left for graduate school in uh, 2014, you know, I was in a job for two years at that point, And I was comfortable and, I'd, uh, you know, I'd been set in my ways. I got a car. And I just, everything was pretty made, living at home, comfortable. So when I decided to uproot myself and just plunge into the unknown, everyone looked at me like, but you don't really need this master's. You don't really need to do anything. Everything you need is right here. So why would you just chuck it all away? Yeah. (laughs) So I keep having that conversation, especially just in a professional context, because when you keep you know, when you keep trying to sort of, you know, push the chess piece forward and you're trying to get work done and, you know, you're, you're repeatedly slapped down, mm. it's just the thought keeps coming up on my mind. But ultimately, you know, when you look at a place like Kuwait, right, and the greater GCC, Kuwait specifically, you know, it's there's so much potential there. And in so many ways, there are it's so easy to achieve if only you know the right people were empowered, if the right if the right small changes were made. It just, it will domino at that point, and that's what it is. And I feel like that's the case for many of the GCC countries as well. So what does the, I guess, issue of brain drain, how does it affect a region's employment and economy? Um, Well, economically, you know, um, a lot of the stuff that I found online, unfortunately, like GCC, 
migration like of GCC nationals, there isn't too much out there. And even like within our own context, mo most of it is anecdotal, like mo right. like stories that we hear from people. But when you look at, for example, countries like India and the Philippines, right, right they have huge migration of people from their own countries to the like to the Middle East and. Mm -hmm. Some of the economic benefits there, for example, are remittances, so money that they send home right. to their families. Like the Philippines alone, according to one index, they wired back 20, like over $27 billion, and that contributed nearly 10% of their GDP that year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, there is, like, it's almost a symbiotic relationship because the receiving country, let's say, like, within the GCC, mm -hmm. they receive manpower, they receive people that they can use for certain jobs and professions here. All right, and those countries right. conversely receive money back, and it's just those economies just. But work. I mean, if you're looking at let's say people in the Middle East who are going abroad, I would assume most likely to the West. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's that same kind of relationship where they're going to the West and living on nothing and sending all their money back to the Middle East. I don't think mm -hmm. that's kind of the relationship that's happening, right? Right, and uh, again, most uh, going back to the anecdotal stuff that I told you, uh, like some of the people that we know, uh, entrepreneurs, for example. Like those people, like the kind of economic gain that they would provide to a country is by launching a business there, by basing mm -hmm. it there, obviously, should that business be successful just by virtue of that person being there, you know, there is, there is added activity to that economy. What, what it gives back home, I can't really say because obviously if that person is completely left and abandoned, you know, their home country, obviously there isn't much gain anymore and that country will be at a, at an, at a complete loss. Okay. So... What were the what are some of the small changes that you kind of saw would help improve things in your while you were working on your report in order to keep those I guess entrepreneurs or those talented people that would be adding to mm -hmm. the Middle Eastern economy as opposed to having them go to the West? Mm -hmm. Oof, you know you're uh, you're tapping into you know some recess knowledge there, but um, <laughs> you know just thinking about some of the issues that people brought up, you know like. When you compare, let's say, Kuwait, Dubai, right? Mm. So in Dubai, the ease of doing something online, you know, just from the comfort of your own home, you know, you don't have to gather 500 papers, go to, you know, four ministries over the course of two weeks and just, you know, hustle stuff. When you could just sit at home and just click, click, click away on a laptop and be done with it. Yeah. That's, we were, we were sort of trying to push the agenda more for e-government, which has been kicking around in Kuwait forever. So... There was that, and you know, we were talking about you know certain how certain entities could just streamline certain processes in a certain way. To we, we identified them by name and just so on, and just providing those tips and that help. So on the, the flip side, though, mm -hmm. just to play devil's advocate, yes, I mean, if you are a citizen of a country, mm -hmm. shouldn't you be kind of just putting up with it and for the benefit of your country? Shouldn't you be like, you know what? It might be tough for me to start a business here, but this is my home. This is where I was born and raised. So even if it takes me two months to start this business as opposed to, and it's more difficult for me to grow it and all of that, why not stay? Great, great scenario. And I'll answer it with this. When you want, like when you have the energy to start a business and mm -hmm. you want to do something, again, you know, you want to do it at home because you know the lay of the land, you know the people, you, and you just know how things work. Right. But when you spend, so, like, X amount of time, let's say on quote unquote meaningless processes, you know, just to get the simplest of tasks done. When you when you run into enough frustration, you know, doing it, if ultimately being human, there comes a limit where you're just like, how much can I put up with knowing that there is perhaps greater opportunity or greater ease elsewhere? Yeah, that... I guess that makes sense. I know a lot of people. Um, 
I know a lot of people kind of feel they don't have opportunities in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and hence they go and look elsewhere. How does the job market, I guess, kind of affect brain drain? Well, in, uh, when, you look, when you look at the GCC, I mean, mm-hmm. the vast majority of nationals are usually employed by the government because they're lured by, you know, relatively high pay, low working hours, and just a very low workload. Right. So it's just very comfortable. You know, the money's there and happy days. So the private sector, there's a, there's a phenomenon that even though, the, even though the governments of these countries are trying to push more people in there, right. you know, just to diversify away and ease that sort of workload – um, it's failing because people just aren't attracted to more hours and more work for essentially less pay, which is why, for example, you have initiatives right. that, you know, that top up governments, uh, the top up private sector salaries, excuse me. And, um, does that answer your question? It does answer my question. I actually have another question, which is related yeah. to racism against locals in the private sector, but we need to take a quick break. So we'll be back for more in a bit with Khalid. Uh, Be right back, guys. This episode is sponsored by Carriage UAE, where you can get everything from food to groceries and even pet supplies. As someone who orders pretty much everything, I pay a lot in delivery charges every month. But now you can sign up for Carriage Black for 20 dirhams a month and get unlimited free deliveries which saves me a bunch of money so I can order even more stuff. If you haven't tried it out yet, go to your app store and download the Carriage app. Check out the episode description of this podcast for more info. And we're back. Excellent. Are you ready? Fire away. Okay. So I feel like there is this um, inherent, I would say, at least in the Gulf, Mm -hmm. a feeling amongst locals in different countries across the gulf that there's racism against them in the private sector to a certain extent have you kind of experienced that at all or have you i guess heard do you know what i'm talking about i guess this is my question <laughs> you mean essentially um local uh, nationals of a certain country working yeah. in a private in the private sector in that country feeling sort of discriminated against yeah yes and hilariously enough i actually have felt that because I worked for a large company in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. You know, this is my own personal experience. And, you know, I walked in very ambitious and I wanted a growth plan. I wanted to know where I was going. And even though, like, ultimately the pay was not, it, it really wasn't that good, other people that I had spoken to within the company who had been there for many more years than I had, they hadn't grown past a certain point. And they said that the general attitude in the company was that, they would keep uh, that the locals essentially were just being shunted into the company because of government quotas yeah. that mandate that, you know, that a certain percentage of your, you know, workforce has to be Kuwaiti nationals. So that there, and because the locals usually are more expensive hires, yeah. a lot of these private companies aren't so incentivized to hire them, but now they're forced to. So just, they keep them there on the side and you just, my, uh, you know, I personally felt that I was only there at that, that my desire to grow was overambitious mm-hmm. and that really a lot of the work, you know, I'm just there to do work. And, and even though I have a certain task and a certain position, just, I'm a, I, you know, I'm a cog in a giant machine and whatever they, they throw at me, I'm supposed to do. And that was, I would support that. I think there is this, I mean, from, again, we have a lot of anecdotal evidence and it's one of those things where you're, you go in and even though you're a local for most of the time in the private sector, you're the minority mm. in in the company. 
um, and it's seen as, oh, you're hired to fill a quota or and and we can't let you grow too big because if you get too good or if you get too much attention, then you're going to take my job because it's much harder to fire you as a local than it is to fire me as a non-local. And so you're kind of in the situation where you're hired because you have to be hired, Mm -hmm. but then you're managed and you're kind of put on hold kind of on on ice so that you can't really grow or shine too much, but you can't get so dissatisfied that you want to leave because you need to be there for a quota. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, And I think like that's kind of the experience that a lot of people tend to have. Um, Or you just get that thing where it's like, oh no, like all, all locals are lazy. And they're only hired because we have to hire you for the quota, mm-hmm. and 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 so you it becomes like this self like fulfilling prophecy because they don't give you work because they assume that you're not going to do it well, mm-hmm. and they assume that you're lazy, and they don't put any kind of like effort into training you or kind of driving you. But at the same time, and so then you just sit around doing nothing, and then you kind of get called lazy for sitting around doing nothing, even though they gave you nothing to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. You're, 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 you know, you're right on so many levels, and so many of these, you know, phenomena have, you know, I've heard of them personally experienced them in Kuwait, in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, in Qatar. And a lot of these traits are unfortunately very commonplace. But conversely, um, I've also experienced, you know, if you're the workhorse and, you know, you just, you naturally walk in there and you just want to get things done. If you work at 100%, some way, somehow, all the work in that department will just drift your way. And then you'll see everyone else just sort of throttle back. And you're the one just getting everything done. And before you know it, you're doing somebody else's work. And that's just the way it is. So, Yeah, but I mean, I feel like that's your fault. Not for working at 100%, because I think like work at 100%, that's Mm -hmm. your job. Um, but I think like if people start dumping stuff on you and you don't know how to manage that situation, that's on you. Like you need to kind of learn how to set boundaries. But I think that is one of the issues I have. The other issue I see a lot in in the local market is to fill because of the quota situation. And, And, and that's the thing, right? You don't really know what to do, right? Because the quota has, there's a reason for the quota, but at the same time, people have found so many loopholes around it. Like Mm -hmm. I know so many companies who just kind of fill their call center with locals or fill like any kind of low end job just so that they can say they hired locals and fill the specific quota. But then when you go anywhere in kind of mid to upper management, you kind of don't really see them because Mm -hmm. they're local. They filled their quota elsewhere. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And that exists. And there's also, there's also something called the ghost payroll where they will hire, you know, those locals and, uh, and give them, you know, they'll give them a title, they'll give them a position so on and so forth. But, they actually aren't required to come into the office. So (laughs) at least on paper, you know, I've hired X number of locals and here they are and this is what they do. But really nobody ever sees them in the office and you just, and the companies will just give them money to stay at home because they have nothing else to do with them, but they need to meet this quota. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. So do you think the quota system is good or do you think the quota system is hurting locals in the market? I mean, where do I begin to unpack that? Um, you know, again, focusing specifically on, you know, like I'll, I'll use, I'll use Kuwait and Qatar as examples, Mm -hmm. um, because their governments provide, you know, they mandate and require employment for their nationals in the government. And they said they will provide it at all costs because those are services provided to you as a citizen by Mm -hmm. right of you being that citizen. Um, I believe that people should be working beyond the government. And that ultimately when you look at a place like Singapore Mm -hmm. where, you know, 
less than 10% of the workforce actually works in the government and working right. in the government is supposed to be a very elite thing. Mm. So I would like to see that kind of inverse here in the, here in the Middle East where instead of, you know, over over 80% of the workforce, uh, I think in Qatar it's 81% working for the government, in Kuwait it's over 90. Yeah. So I would love to see that those ratios flipped, but I think that it requires a lot more of, you know, it requires like a, a more radical structural change within the government and sort of their definition of the welfare package because using, you know, job as welfare. Yeah, that's the thing that I think is kind of funny because mm -hmm. like, A, if you want to encourage people to go into the private sector, stop guaranteeing them a government job mm -hmm. that is for life. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's one. And then B, if you're guaranteeing someone a job that they don't have to show up to, and that they can get fired from, how is that different than welfare? You know what I mean? And I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't get, mm -hmm. is that when 90% of your population or 80% of your population or any kind of majority percent of your population is working for the government and not doing much, realistically speaking, you are a welfare state and your population is on welfare. It just so happens that you have enough natural resources to, to cover, support that. to support that. But that doesn't mean that you're a thriving economy in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the fact is, if you, realistically speaking, didn't guarantee people jobs, it would be a very different ballgame. You'd start seeing locals working at Starbucks, working at McDonald's, Correct. doing all these jobs that we're currently paying external people to do. And, you know, we're doing, like, what was it, two Two billion a year to the Philippines, <laughs> or something like that. What was, I don't even remember what the number you said was, but like that's a huge oh, 27, number. Twenty-seven, yeah. Yeah, and and like that's just crazy. That's money that could be kind of just circulating internally. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I think like I, I I agree with you in that sense. The the guaranteed jobs is definitely something I see as a problem. Exactly, and uh, and the the, pro the more problematic issue is that even though you know, like as our populations grow, because you know historically, let's say again, focusing on Kuwait, nineteen in nineteen sixty one, small population, maybe back then, you know, like the money to people ratio was much different than it is right now. But now that the population has boomed, yeah, I mean, last year alone, the like the Civil Service Commission, which furnishes government jobs to to nationals, created over seventeen thousand jobs. For Kuwaitis in, in ministries and and, right. and so many ministries you'll walk into, you know, you'll you, you'll see one desk with four people sitting at it and they're all just sort of playing with their phones with nothing really to do. But this is a job they have. Yeah. They get paid for it. And you're essentially giving them a kind of importance by giving them a position. Yeah. And, you know, that is that's just really dangerous on so many levels, because then these people believe that they have some kind of a contribution when really they're just a butt in a seat. Yeah. If they even get a seat. Like I have a friend who. And went and uh, quit his private sector job and was like, I'm going to try my hand and just work in government like everyone else. Um, he didn't get a, a desk for the first four months. He didn't have a place to sit. He didn't have assigned seating. So he just like show up to the ministry and then like just sit around somewhere on his phone doing mm -hmm. nothing. And then like four months later, they finally gave him a desk. And he was like, this is like, I didn't know this. Like, this is just a mistake on so many <laughs> levels. Now let me but tell like, you why you this think? is wrong. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's 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 crazy. But uh, okay, so one thing is reverse, I guess, that whole guaranteed job situation. Uh, what else could be done? Do you think? 
Um, basically, I think that, you know, like aside from a, like entirely abolishing the system, you know, mm-hmm. like removing the job as welfare thing. So something, for example, as radical as just giving everyone a check, for example, to stay home. Like, mm-hmm. here's the money you would make otherwise, but no job. Just stay home, do something. And, you know, you'll sort of push them that, you know, you'll be sitting at home receiving a welfare check. And then you think to yourself, okay, maybe now I should get a job. Or you restructure that package in a sense that, you know, you can have X amount of money, but up to a certain limit, and then will decrease the kind of money that you get. So then it just, it sort of incentivizes people. Yeah, for the love of God, stay home. You're just causing traffic in the city, stopping us from being able to get to where we need Thank to get you. to. <laughs> like, stay home, get your check. Let make the streets less busy, less pollution at least. Be more green. You know what I mean? Anyway, sorry. That was just my own little rant. Because, like, I just remember the horrendous traffic around, like, the working hours when government's getting out and when government's getting into the office. But anyway, that's... I digress. Sorry. Go on. No, no, no. Other solutions? (laughs) Real problems. But um, as well, you know, and I think this has been touched on uh, in some of your previous podcasts and definitely in a lot of conversations that I've had, I think that a more fundamental change needs to be undertaken with education. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, you know, when you look at a lot of these countries, the education systems are structured, you know, just it's very programmed learning in which you memorize, you regurgitate, and then you just sort of wasta your way through something. And just, you know, if you're not going to graduate, yeah. you know, you, buy, you, you bribe, you buy off, you talk to, and mm-hmm. just essentially here's your diploma. And, you know, you just go to the, to the job that you're guaranteed. Yeah. So by restructuring the education system to encourage critical thinking. Thank you. Yes. Right. And just... Just to actually use your brain and think of things that are not necessarily as conventional as A, B, C and and just spoon feeding, Mm -hmm. that in and of itself will generate a new, you know, generation, if you will, of thinkers and people who just, you know, who will think beyond what is handed to them. Yeah. I think, I mean, to look at the, like, the population, especially, like, if you're looking at the Gulf, only a few generations ago, the struggle was real. People had to kind of like really, really be on top of things in order to just survive. And now you've got a generation that just sits around doing nothing. And I'm like, the potential, the potential for people in the region to kind of do some really amazing things if you just activated them mm-hmm. um, is crazy. And I think like a, we have such a high percentage of people who are just kind of like, depressed and don't know what to do with their lives and all that and that's just because they have no purpose they literally wake up every day and they just have everything handed to them and then they're expected to somehow just make it from the day they're born till the day they die with no sense of purpose or achievement whatsoever maybe get married and procreate and you know create more children that also have no sense of purpose but like that's the extent of it you know what i mean and i think that's just a very kind of sad existence um and i think that's what frustrates me the non-activation of the population because i think people are your strongest asset and if you learn to activate your people that's when things can be amazing well where do you go if you start at the top right (laughs) so and you know i was actually having this conversation the other day with um you know with my own family and just some friends later on that you know my like my own father for example was born in kuwait when you know inside what was the old wall. So mm-hmm. he wasn't even born in a hospital and my father was born in the fifties. Right. So just, you know, just to, just to sort of see that kind of, you know, like those two very separate worlds between when he was born and when I was born yeah. 
is incredible. And like you said, you know, for so many people and just with, you know, so many living people right now mm -hmm. who saw something completely different to the kind of, you know, handout, you know, life that we yeah, have. Exactly. You know, it, there is, the, it's created such a large population of just disillusioned youth. Yeah. And that for so many people, you know, uh, life has just sort of become a, you know, just a checklist and just, you go to university because that's what you do. Yeah. You get a job because that's what you do. You get married because that's what you do. And there is no fulfillment in any of it because you're essentially just living what is being dictated and told that, you know, is successful, is the right thing to do, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think the concept of a fulfilled life is something we teach our kids in this region or talk about, I guess, even amongst ourselves that often? I mean, you know, personally speaking, right? Um, fulfillment isn't, so, uh, I don't, you know, like, is a word that I heard just because I, you know, of my own circumstance and my own lifestyle, but from what I see within my own family that was raised mm -hmm. in the region, you know, you just, you see them being taught notions of success. And a lot of that is just sort of material and monetary. Yeah. So get a job, make X amount of money, success. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, but fulfillment and satisfaction are not something that are taught to anyone. And ultimately, you know, satisfaction is something that comes from within rather mm -hmm. than from without. So just by having a fancy car and having, you know, just that material life that is deemed successful and, you know, luxurious and fulfilled, does that really satisfy you by having it? So I guess that loops me back down to the concept of brain drain in mm -hmm. the sense that is are those the people that are leaving, the people who are not finding fulfillment in that car, that house, that checklist? Is that then do you just then at that point feel, okay, I don't fit in this with this culture because if I just check the checklist in the eyes of our society, I will be successful and I should be happy, yet I'm not feeling any of those things. So let me go kind of search and wander and explore the rest of the world. Does that kind of make sense? It does. And, um, you know, some of the people that we've, that we know and have talked to, you know, a lot of them, again, they would, they would easily trade off and sacrifice the ease of life just because, you know, they want to put up with a little bit of competition. They want to deal with just something more because they realize ultimately that our region is sheltered and that, you know, we, and ultimately we are so privileged Yeah, and you don't sort of see, you, you know, like the, just the general direction of, you know, government and the area and like the, the way it's going, it doesn't want to shake that off. So if you want something more than that, ultimately you hit a ceiling that can't be provided. So you need to take it upon yourself. Yeah. Hence. Exactly. And I mean, we, when we say our region, we mean the Gulf, mm -hmm. not the rest of the Middle East. Cause exactly. we know there's a lot of places in the Middle East that are obviously struggling and having a lot of issues and things like that. Yeah, far different. Um, and have a far different experience and people leave their, their homes there for very, very different reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't think either of us can speak to that, um, perspective. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so, so yeah. So I guess then my question is, do you have any stats or any kind of knowledge on people who do leave their country, whether or not they end up moving back home? I mean, think, thinking just, you know, formal statistics, not, uh, no, but, you know, anecdotally, I don't, you know, the, the few people that I do know who have left, mm. A lot of them, you know, will position themselves in a place and especially in like in today's world mm. where connectivity and transport are just so much easier. And, you know, it, it, it won't take you more than a day, for example, to get from the furthest end of the world to this uh, to where we are. You know, it's just in, in one perspective, you know, in, uh, from one side, you can argue that 
moving away, you don't need to come back because you can just you can still remain connected, right? right? And just move around so easily. But conversely, you know, it, you know one shouldn't underestimate that just the strength of you know of our ties here. You know, mm. just the power of family and the centrality of you know of your just of that family and society. So I think that that is something that could bring people back, you know, just that togetherness factor. And, yeah. I can see that because I think we do, when you're raised in the Middle East, there's that sense of kind of connectivity, that sense of family, that sense of like being rooted and part of something bigger than yourself, that when you move to the West, you lose to a certain extent. And I think the way we connect and the way we build our relationships is very, very different than the way that relationships are kind of built in other societies. Um, and I see that even vice versa. Like when it comes to people who are coming to do business in the Middle East, it, they're just shocked because like for them, like they, they realize very quickly, oh no, I have to kind of fly in six to seven times just to build the relationship, just so they get to know me before I even start talking business. Because the way that we do relationships is not on a tit-for-tat basis or a pragmatic basis mm-hmm. only. It's a relationship first, business, everything else comes kind of second to that. Um, so yeah, I could see it also being the other way around where you go abroad and like you're used to kind of these ride-or-die relationships that you then don't find necessarily as easily uh, with people from another society, if that makes sense. It does. And, um, you know, you actually just brought up a really good just, you know, sort of disconnect on both sides, you know, like because the Middle East, the Gulf, sorry, um, because, you know, the way that our societies are structured, you know, it's we're small populations. Everyone essentially is two degrees of separation away from everyone else. Right. So when one person removes themselves from that, you know, that molecule and just goes somewhere else entirely, you know, in many ways, that society deems you an outsider yeah. and, you know, like just as selfish because why would you leave when you're part of something so much bigger? Yeah. And then also for a lot of foreigners who come to the region, you know, just breaking into that sort of very structured and insular and, you know, and small community is very difficult. And a lot of times, you know, people can come here and just spend years and build their careers and, you know, they won't even interact with locals yeah. just because the locals are so, you know, kept to themselves and just they sort of, they function within their own parameters. No, that's so true. I mean, I think, I mean, I've lived in Dubai for four years now. I think three years in is when I started making Imalati friends. Wow. And I'm like, Khaliji to Khaliji, like, you know what I mean? Like, Gulf to Gulf. Uh, it's just because, again, like you said, like, your networks are so established from such a young age. Like, my, like, I was just at a wedding, and the amount of people there that I knew that I'd known since, like, I was seven or eight or ten is crazy because, like you said, your network is so small. You're, you're, everyone is like two degrees of separation. So it ends up being kind of this insular, same, same situation, I guess, mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And why let anyone else <laughs> to a certain extent? Um, so, yeah. Okay, cool. So that's been very, very helpful. Anything else you want to add in terms of the topic? I know you brought a laptop with lots of cool statistics. So anything that you feel like people <laughs> need to know when it comes to the the subject of kind of brain drain or anything like that? Well, it wasn't so much statistics as, as much as it was just sort of a collection of just my thoughts and things that I wanted to, you know, bring to the table. But, you know, it's just, I think it's, I think it's important for us, you know, as a GCC population, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Kuwait, whether it's Qatar, whether it's the UAE or whatever, um, we all need to really just sort of think about 
what is ultimately good for our country rather than what is just good for ourselves in the here and now. Right. And just that long-term thinking in so many ways is so it doesn't even exist on a personal level, let alone on an institutional level. So in order for any sort of change to be affected, you know, to ensure the long-term, you know, the longevity and the sustainability of our countries, you know, just these conversations need to be had and they need to be had really soon. How soon? <laughs> How much time? When are we going to run out of time? Khalid, let us know. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you off the air. <laughs> okay. All right. okay, so we have some questions that we tend, like that I ask like all the guests. Uh, so let's jump into those. Uh, what is the part of your culture that you carry with you always? Hmm. Excellent question. Um, hmm. Sorry about that. Um, no, take your time. You know, just drawing a bit of a blank. I think for me, it's, you know, just the power of family, mm. you know, um, you know, I'm, I have a great family that I come from and, um, just when I, when I talk to my people in the West, like, you know, to my friends in the West and ever, and just non Arab nationals, just sort of explaining just the concept of that network and how, yeah. and how intricate it is. And, you know, for better or worse. Right. Yeah. I think that that's just that sort of connectivity and that, you know, keeping maintaining that core. That's that's something that I always remind myself of. Okay. And what is the quality you most value in the people you keep around you? Honesty. Honesty. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, the like the the friends that I've you know, the, like obviously, you know, we all go through circles of people, and you know, different people at different t- points of your life. But I think right now it's just it's come to a point where you know there's no more BS. So yeah. you know, I just turned thirty. So that's sort of <laughs> right. Thank you. You know, goodbye twenties. But um, thirties so, are better. Trust me. Really, <laughs> we'll talk about that. But um, I think it's just I've reached a point where it's I don't want to deal with any more fluff and just it's it's about substance and making something. So, and do you find that honesty in I guess the tight collective that you have around you? There are pockets. Okay, cool. And lastly, uh, what makes you happy? What makes me happy? To be completely honest, travel. Travel? Mm-hmm. Okay, where's your favorite place to travel? So far, it's been Japan. Oh, I've been dying to go. Oof. You know, <laughs> let's, let's have a proper conversation because there's okay. so much to see. It is a whole other world unto itself. All right, cool. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me on today's episode, Khalid. Uh, where can people find out more about you or any projects you are working on? Um... You can find me on uh, on LinkedIn. Okay. I have a lot of stuff there. And um, I also have a uh, an Instagram, which is uh, Chabba, K-H-A-B-A-H. All right. We'll put the LinkedIn profile and the Instagram both in the episode description where you guys can find it. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. As always, I love your comments and messages, so keep them coming. You can reach me on the Millennial Mirrors Instagram or my personal Instagram, both of which are in the episode description. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Rami or wherever you're listening. Join me next week for another episode of Millennial Mirrors. This has been a production of Finial Media, and this is Mshadir Arnazi signing out. Bye, guys. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs>